Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Good morning and welcome to Abundant Life Church. Uh, to those in the room with me and those who are watching or listening online or through a podcast, so glad that you guys are a part of this. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're new with us, we are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And there's lots going on right now at our church. And a couple of things I just want to bring your attention to that are happening uh, within this next week. The first is we are hosting the Global Leadership Summit. We have been talking to you about this for months if you have been here. That's this week, like Thursday, Friday. So if you're one of those people like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign up for that. You know who you are, right? If you're that person, uh, you're there. Like this is the week it happens, Thursday, Friday. If you don't know what this is, it is two days. Uh, we are going to simulcast a uh, conference from Chicago. It's gonna be at our Happy Valley campus. Uh, our staff's gonna be there. I'm gonna be there. It's gonna be so great. Two days of, of just learning and growing together. You might ask, why do we do this? Uh, part of who we wanna be as a church is teachable. We wanna be a teachable community that is learning and growing, constantly asking God, hey, what's next? Uh, what do we need to be keep, you know, to keep working on, on ourselves? This is an incredible way to do this. And so we've already got uh, a few hundred signed up. I wanna encourage you, join us. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Those who came last year uh, absolutely loved it. And so we want you to be a part of that. That's this Thursday, Friday. You can sign up uh, right there on the website. I encourage you to take advantage of that. Also, I'll let you know, next weekend, we're beginning a new series called The Summer Playlist. And we're going to look at uh, finding God in the music around us. And we're gonna look at different songs each week, secular songs, uh, where we can find connections with who God is. Because the reality is, uh, Jesus doesn't live in the Bible, doesn't live in the church. Uh, God is alive and well all around us. And so we're gonna learn to start seeing him around us. And here's what's gonna be really exciting about this series. I'm not going to preach it. We are going to invite a number of our staff to do this, and I'm gonna spend the next four weekends on a study leave. And what that is, is a, a normal thing in, in the church world, and uh, some of you may need to do this in your own profession as well, uh, but it's a way to recharge your batteries. Now, here's the reality. Uh, my job is a very unique job. I get the opportunity to stand in front of thousands of people every weekend and to share what God has laid on my heart. It's something I do not take lightly. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity. Uh, but you can't keep pouring out and pouring out and pouring out unless you also have enough coming in. And so I'm gonna spend the next month uh, just listening to God, reading a ton of books, praying, and just having a chance to catch my breath just to recharge and go, all right, God, what, what, what do we do for the next year? And just have a chance to, to hit reset on that. Uh, because when people in my position burn out, really bad things happen. And so the eldership of our church, uh, we've been talking about this for a couple of years, have worked with me to figure out what are healthy rhythms of rest into uh, what I'm doing uh, so that I can be the healthy version of me and that ultimately our, our community can model rest and uh, not just keep going and going and going. So that's what's going to happen in this next series. This is a great series to bring someone to uh, because we're going to talk about music that they may know, they may love, and we're going to find God in the music. And so I want to encourage you, uh, that's what's going to happen in this next series. Now today, uh, we are in week seven. We are closing out our Say What series. And so if you've got a journal, I want to encourage you to get that out. If you've made it all the way through your journal, you've got a collector's item, a seven-week journal. Uh, so I encourage you to go to week seven. You'll see a spot to take notes there. And if not, just take something to take notes with. Uh, you're going to want to write some of these things down that we're going to get into today. 
This has been such a fun series for me to preach, uh, just diving into different texts and figuring out what do they say, uh, what do we think they say, and what do they maybe say a little bit differently once we study them. And I've had a number of you talk to me uh, each week going, we want to do like round two of this. Let's just keep it going. And okay, we're not going to keep it going, but maybe we'll do a round two in the future. Uh, but here's what's fun. I have saved the most for last. I know now, now you're going, what is the most? I, I have said what I would, I would consider the single most misquoted verse in all the Bible for last. I did not begin with this because I didn't think you guys were ready for it, all right? So we have warmed you up for six weeks and now you're ready. Now you're, you're excited. You believe something good's coming. And so we're gonna talk about something today. If you've got your Bibles, go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Some of you are going, oh no. I know what verse he's going to. Uh, Jeremiah 29, get your spot there. We're gonna look at that. Uh, again, I think this is the single most misquoted verse. And here's what I would tell you. I am going to step on some toes with this one, okay? So hear me, hear me. I love you, okay? I love you. I hope you love me too when we're done with this. Uh, we are going to work this through together and, and just really challenge some things that you no doubt have heard. Maybe you have said and you thought it was the way it is, but I, I hope you'll find it's even better if you'll make it all the way through the message, okay? So once we get to the end, I hope you go off and go, oh, that, that's actually really good. Um, but let's look at this verse together. Jeremiah 29, 11, the misquoted verse of the day. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Amen, right? I mean, this is just like, oh, so good. Uh, if you just recently graduated, maybe this was all over cards uh, that you got because God wants to prosper you. We love this idea. What's not to love? that God would make this promise for us that, that we are gonna be wildly prospering, we've got a future and everything's gonna be amazing. This sounds awesome. And why I think this verse has taken off so much, and again, you might know of this verse even if you're not a Christian. You might be here today, you're like, look, I don't know where I'm at with Jesus and this whole church thing, this whole Bible thing. Well, first off, we're so glad you're here. Uh, you are absolutely welcome here. But even if you're not real familiar, you might have heard of this because we love quoting this and Christians love this. This is on shirts and on bumper stickers. And I mean, it's on Facebook walls. I mean, this thing is all over the place. And why I think it's so successful, because it merges the American dream with Christianity. That the American dream go, oh yes, I need all these things, but I need it in the name of Jesus. And so we add this verse to it, it sounds spiritual. We go, yes, God wants that for me. God wants all these things to happen. This is a promise I can take to the bank. And when I hear this quoted, uh, this is usually quoted with a ton of confidence. It's not like, yeah, maybe, you know, Jeremiah 2011 applies. It's like, Jeremiah 2011, claim it. You gotta claim that. This is our promise. And we have such a confidence in this verse. It reminds me a little bit, when I was in middle school, I went through a phase in middle school, probably a number of them. Uh, if you're like me, you know, it takes a little bit to grow up. You gotta work through some things. And I went through a phase where I was really into spit wads. Anyone else go through a phase? Like that couple of guys with me are like, yeah, okay. Not proud of it, just saying I went through a phase uh, where I thought spit wads were like the coolest thing in the world. And in case you're far more mature than me and have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, I would hollow out pens. And then um, when you have that, you would literally spit wad, you take a piece of paper, wad up in your mouth, you know, shoot it. And then your, if you got a successful hit, your spit is like running down someone's face. It was amazing. Yes, now you get it. 
middle school boys. It's a thing that we, we did. So I would do this phase where I was like really into it and I had a whole arsenal of, you know, pens that I'd hollowed out for this and gotten all ready. And, uh, and, and I had a group of us, we would just, you know, if we were bored in class, we would just see who could get the best, you know, a spit wad shot at each other. And I remember one day uh, we were, you know, rotating classes in middle school, got a new teacher, uh, first day of the semester, had never had this teacher before. And he introduces himself and he explains that he's legally blind. Now, I never had a legally blind teacher, and so he's explaining all this and saying that, you know, he can only see, like, really right in front of him. And, and so he's explaining this, and I'm not proud to say this, but this is part of my story. My first thought was, I will never get caught shooting a spitwad in this class. <laughs> not proud of that. I'm just telling you that was what I thought as a middle schooler. And so I remember thinking, this is a green light to get, to get away with this. And so I'll never forget, first day of class, he has his back to us. He's writing something on the board and I load up and I get this thing ready and I look over, I got one of my friends over there and I just shoot this thing and it was like all the stars aligned. My friend just happened to glance over <laughs> right in the head, just going down. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing in the world. I was thinking this is gonna be such a fun semester. But then something awful happened. The professor stops writing, turns his head like this and I kid you not says, did someone just shoot a spit one? I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. There's no way he saw that. And he turns around and he goes, it came from somewhere over here and points to my section. And that's when I realized he may not be able to see, but he has supersonic hearing. <laughs> he singled me out. The whole class ratted me out and I got in trouble day one because I had a false confidence in my abilities. Why do I tell you that? Number one, hopefully I've grown as a person and I'm not that guy anymore. Number two, because what he did to me is what I'm gonna try to do to you today. You're like, wait, what? This is weird. Uh, so you're coming in, you may have confidence in this verse. I'm going to break down the confidence and rebuild it with something better. But first we gotta go after it and go, okay, what is it that this verse is really being used for? Let's, let's deconstruct that a little bit. And then if you hang with me, I'm gonna reconstruct it. Hopefully something I think is quite a bit better. So what's going on here? What is the problem with this verse, the way that it's often quoted? Well, I wanna teach you a new phrase today. Uh, if you have something to write down, you're gonna wanna write this down because you will not remember this. Uh, so I wanna encourage you to write just three words, uh, but this is a new phrase, uh, not new, like it's not a brand new phrase, just new to most of us. Uh, we don't use this phrase a lot. Here is the phrase. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Right, great phrase, you're going, what are you talking about? Uh, now this is a phrase, write this down, I kid you not. You could use this at a party this week. Just throw this into conversation and people will be like, that person is so smart. I don't know what party you throw this in at, but uh, this is an amazing idea. This helps us to understand uh, spirituality in America. Uh, this is a huge way of understanding it. Now, because these words uh, all together probably make your eyes gloss over and you're like, I don't know what this is, let me give you my paraphrase of this phrase. Be good, feel good, God's good with it. Okay, that's my summary. So just write that down. If you can remember that, uh, it's an easy way to remember what this phrase is describing. Be good, feel good, God's good with it. Moralistic, be good, do good things. That's what the idea of moralistic is. Therapeutic, 
feel good, right? It's, it's about how it makes you feel. And finally, deism is the idea that God exists and God created everything, but God's pretty chill and God's gonna let you do whatever and, and he's okay with it. And so this is a way of understanding so much of how we talk about Christianity in America today. Now, this, this uh, phrase was coined by two sociologists in, back in 2005. And what they did is they interviewed 3,000 teenagers and they asked these teenagers about what they believed about God and the Bible and what their worldview was. And after these 3,000 interviews, they came up with this phrase to describe what most of these teenagers expressed. Now, in case you're like, yeah, teenagers are the problem. Uh, that was 14 years ago. And so most teenagers are not teenagers anymore. Uh, so just be aware of that. Uh, but this, was, you know, this is how this conversation came to light. And what you'll notice is this is a huge way of understanding religion in America today. Now, these uh, authors, Smith and Denton, said that there's five phrases uh, that helps to understand what this idea is all about, what moralistic therapeutic deism is. Let me walk you through these five. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Now, I want you to notice in all of these uh, that they're, they're really, really vague, okay? So a God exists. What kind of God? Not mentioned, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over. What, what does that look like? Well, we don't know. Watches over human life on earth. So it's not atheism. This is a belief in God, uh, but not real specific what kind of God, really any kind of God could fit in this definition, as you'll see. Uh, but that's where it begins. There is a concept of God. Number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, right? This is where you get into the moralistic part. This is what you should do. Morality looks like be good, be nice, uh, be fair to each other. Uh, anyone, you know, that's like the, the, the way we describe so many things. Just be a good person. That's really what it's about. Be a good person. That's what you see captures this idea. Also notice here, as taught in the Bible, and by most world religions, right? They're all the same. They're all telling us to be a good person. And so morality, in essence, is boiled down to this, just be good uh, to one another. That's what it means to be a moral person. The third statement is this. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about one's self. This is the therapeutic part. Uh, ever heard someone say, well, I, I just, you know, God wants me to be happy. That's where we get this idea from. It's this, this notion that this is a big deal to God, whether or not you and I are happy. And, and even in the church, this, this looks really weird. I, I remember I had a friend one time uh, years ago, and he's a Christian, and he was explaining to me, hey, uh, my marriage is so bad that in six months, if it doesn't get better, I'm gonna leave my wife and, and go after this other girl. I'm going, Wait, what? If in six months it doesn't get better, where are you getting six months? What, what? I literally couldn't understand. Like, what is this from? And he said, well, God wants me to be happy. And if I'm not happy in six months, I don't think God would want me to stay in this marriage. Like, oh. So when you put happiness as the goal of life, you start doing weird things because if you're not happy, then change it up. Then go for something else. And again, all of this is the therapeutic part of, of this idea. Fourth one says this. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. 
Isn't that great? All right. Oh, this is deism, uh, and we love this idea, right? So God's not going to intersect your life. He's not going to, you know, speak up in your life. You don't have to worry about him unless, of course, you need him. And if things are bad, then pray, and he will be there. You don't have to worry about that, but he's not gonna ask anything of you. He's never gonna make you uncomfortable. He's never gonna push you into anything. He's always on your terms. And this is how you know when you've created God in your image, right? This is uh, the idea of deism. Finally, the statement is this. Good people go to heaven when they die. Right? This is all it's all about. So just be a good person. If you are a good person, then you get to go to heaven when you die. Uh, never mind the fact of how good is good enough. Uh, don't worry about it. Just be good. Be a nice person. It'll all work out as long as you're happy. And then you get to be happy for eternity. And this is how we describe it. Now, uh, hopefully, if you're processing this, you're going, that sounds a little bit like Christianity, but it doesn't sound like Christianity, right? It's got like a, an aroma of Christianity. It's kind of like a LaCroix of Christianity. <laughs> I literally just made that joke up. That's an amazing joke. I gotta remember that. Uh, <laughs> that's the Holy Spirit speaking through me right now. <laughs> I'm really proud of that joke. I can't. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's good. Um, okay, so this, here's the deal. If this sounds like Christianity to you, Hopefully you have not been attending ALC for very long uh, because I have failed you. If you go, yeah, that is what Jesus is all about. Uh, this is not Christianity. This is not what Jesus is all about. And hopefully you're going, yeah, there's a number of issues with this based on what we know about Jesus. Now, the, the, the two authors that coined the term, they concluded this. And again, it's a little bit of academic speak, but, but notice their conclusion uh, as they processed this whole idea. They said, a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, okay? And he says this, but has rather substantially morphed into, notice this great phrase, Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, what is that saying? This looks like Christianity from afar, but it is not remotely connected to historical Christianity. That this would be better described, I love this phrase, Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin. It's that one member of your family, it's a little bit odd, and it shows up at family reunions, you're like, who invited, you know, that guy? But it's like, that is Christian, you know, uh, moralistic uh, therapeutic deism. It, it kind of looks like it, but you're going, it's not actually the thing. Now, here's why I'm setting this up. Number one, this will help you understand a lot of the conversation that you hear uh, when people talk about Christianity in America today. But number two, the way that we quote Jeremiah 20 and 11, I would suggest fits in with moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay, so this is where, I, what I wanna suggest is that I'm gonna try to pull it out of that context and put it into a context based on Jesus. And, and the way that we quote Jeremiah 20, 11 is like, hey, yeah, just, just 
do good things, and, and really we're gonna feel great uh, when we do this, and God's great with all of it. And you realize that that might sound good when you pluck Jeremiah 20 11 out of its context. It might easily fit into uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, but it's not what the verse is actually explaining once we go back and we see the context of this. And so let's go unpack this if you're with me in Jeremiah 20 and 11. How do we begin to figure out what this is really about? The first question we have to ask is who is the you in the sentence, right? For I know the plans I have for you, okay? Stop there and go, who is the you? Answer, not you. That's who it is, okay? So you wanna know the first question, who is the you in Jeremiah 20 11? Not you, you're going, whoa, why can't it be me? Number one, this is not said to an individual, it's said to a group, in particular, into a nation of people. And so if you take Jeremiah 29 11 and you individualize it for your life, for your graduation, for your future uh, success in your career, you are already plucking it out of its context without knowing anything else about it. It's not said to a person, it is not said to a you like that. And what you'll notice, if we go up to Jeremiah 29, 11, if you begin just one verse previous, verse 10, what you realize is verse 11 is the middle of a sentence. It's the middle of a quote. It's the it, it's partial idea. The idea begins in verse 10, but we never quote verse 10. You wanna know why? Because it completely changes the context. So watch what happens. We're just gonna go one verse earlier and notice how different this sounds. Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Did you catch it? So if you want to claim Jeremiah 29 11, how many years do you have to wait to claim it? 70 years. Who's pumped about that? I don't see it. All right, maybe where you are. Uh, not exciting. Like, that's a promise to someone else's generation. It's a promise that you're going, yeah, you're probably not gonna even see this. I mean, that's a weird promise to make to someone unless you put it in the bigger context of what God is doing. This is not an individual God to this person. Hey, I'm gonna pump you up. Guess what? I got plans for you. This is God to a group of people with a much longer story taking place. The book of Jer Jeremiah, in which this comes from, is all about God disrupting his people's plans and upending their dreams. And in the midst of that, God goes, hey, uh, in case you're wondering, I still have plans for you. I know you're probably wondering if I'm done here, if I've checked out, uh, but I haven't checked out. Now, we have to know a little bit of history to make this make sense. I'm gonna give you a real quick synopsis of this. This could go into a way long explanation, but here's what you have to understand. In the nation of Israel, at this time in history, there was two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. It had been fractured. The northern kingdom, prior to this, had been deported to Assyria, okay? So they are, are all taken. Then you have the southern kingdom holding on, but they get deported to Babylon. And so this is written in the time of the Babylonian exile of Israel. And so what happened is God had been forming his people. This is the story of the Old Testament. If you read it, these are the, the Hebrew scriptures. He'd been forming his people. They'd been on this journey. And now it looks like the journey has come 
to an end. Let me show you this graphically uh, that helps you put perspective on this. This is uh, capturing about 1,500 years, okay? So if you're, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, I don't know these stories, it's okay. Just understand, this is like the Old Testament of your Bible. 1,500 years of time is represented in this map. So here's Egypt, uh, here's the Holy Land right here. And so what you have to understand is, you know, Abraham has this journey where he comes over here. And then if you fast forward the story, you get to a guy named Joseph, and Joseph's gonna take it all the way into Egypt. Uh, you can read about that. Then after Joseph, there's this guy named Moses, and he's gonna deliver the people away from Pharaoh, and he delivers them here, and then Joshua is going to succeed Moses. Joshua is going to get him up to here, and then that, it goes well for a while, but now what you have at this point in history is they're back into Babylon, and if you see it again from 1,500 years, it's a big story. You can kind of see that for them, this looks like you went right back to where you began, you have negated all the progress, all 1,500 years of God's movement and God's uh, interaction have all come back. Look at where you are. You're right back to where Abraham began. And you can sense the despair here and, and like the, the feeling of, man, we had something and we lost it. And, and this has not worked out for us. And when you understand the context of who this is written to in Jeremiah 29, what you realize is last I checked, not a single one of us fits this context. I don't even care who you are watching online, where in the world you're watching or listening online, this does not fit you. This is a very specific context in history, which means this. We want the promise without the problem. And this is a bad way to begin to understand God's promises, okay? So you don't get to claim a promise if the problem doesn't apply to you. That's a little bit bizarre. And so what we're doing is we are popping in on someone else's problem without taking on any part of that problem. We want to pluck the promise out of it and apply it to ourselves, which is where it goes so wrong in the way that we often quote Jeremiah 20 and 11. It's like saying, I want God to do a miracle in my life, but I don't want to need one. Well, if you don't need a miracle, it's gonna be hard for God to do a miracle in your life, and that's the way that we read it. So what you have to understand is when we read this as Americans today, we read into this prosperity idea so much differently than they would have then they would have processed this because they are not prospering. They are not comfortable. They are not uh, doing well by any stretch of the imagination. And this is a letter of encouragement to them. And yet we read it today and go, no, God wants me to have even more than I already do. God wants me to have even greater success than I already do. This is a letter written to people who had been convinced that God had abandoned them that God was done with their story, that there were no more plans for them because they had failed and now they're back in exile and this was the end of it. And to them, God says, I've got plans for you. It's not done yet. These plans aren't gonna happen in your lifetime. It's gonna be 70 years from now, but I have plans for, for these people. I am not done yet, even when things look at their worst. Now, what do we do with this? Now, it doesn't mean that we can't take anything from Jeremiah 20 11. It just means that we have to read their context into it, their story into it, before we conclude what this means for us today. And so once we do that, here would be a great takeaway I would offer. If you want to know, how do I read Jeremiah 29 11 in context? What's a good takeaway for me today? Here's what I would offer. That God 
does some of his best work when we feel helpless. That's a takeaway from Jeremiah 2011, that God does some of his best work when we feel helpless. Now you might be going, what's the opposite of how we quote Jeremiah 2011, right? I don't wanna feel helpless, I I wanna prosper. And that's the point, that this is really what it's written to. It's written to a people who feel helpless, who God is delivering a message of hope. Now I want you to think of this as a letter that we intercept today. And to whatever degree we we overlap with the people in the original context, it can directly apply to us. And to whatever degree we don't fit it, we have to take a step back and go, there there, there must be some other explanation that we have to to take from it. Now, why do I say to read it like that? Well, if you go back to verse one in chapter 29, it states this pretty clearly for us. Jeremiah 29, verse one. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We know exactly who this is written to, who wrote it, why it was written, when it was written. It's all the context right there. And the point is you and I do not match this context. And uh, go through, read any of those and go, yeah, that's me, that's me. Probably not, right? As you look at that, you're going, oh, that's not my story. That's not my situation. And so again, uh, don't claim a promise that doesn't match the problem that you have. They were dealing with something that we don't necessarily understand. Or think about it this way. If I gave you a letter and I said, hey, I wrote this letter for your friend. Would you please deliver it to your friend? Now imagine you take this letter, you go, oh, okay, Jeremy gave me the letter. And and you take the letter and instead of delivering it, you decide you're gonna read it first because of course you would, right? So you read the letter, and and you could read that. Now again, you might be able to understand a lot about me based on what I say to your friend. You could learn more about me. You could understand more about your friend based on what I say to them in this letter. You could even understand our friendship, you know, based on things that are mentioned in this letter. But it would be silly to conclude that I wrote that letter to you when you know the letter is for your friend. You wouldn't read it like a letter to you because you're gonna read it like a letter to your friend that you might be able to learn things from. And that's what we have to understand here. Or I don't know about you, if uh, any parents out here, uh, you ever have, maybe it's just me, but like your kids ever butt into conversations that they're not invited to? Uh, Just me? Okay. So like my wife and I will be mid-conversation talking through something about halfway through. One of our children will pop in and assert a very confident opinion about what the conversation is doing. And I'll look at them and say, you've got no clue what we're talking about. We did not invite you into the conversation. You don't know the depth of the conversation. You just heard a couple little details here. And now you formed an opinion that you want to weigh in on. Now, if I want my kids in the conversation, I will bring them into it. I will tell them the context. I will bring them into all the details. Here's what we're talking about. But if I don't, it's silly of them to pop in mid-conversation and assume, I know exactly what mom and dad are talking about. Here's what you guys should do. It's a little bit silly. And that's what a lot of us do when we read the Bible. We pop right in. I know exactly what this is. This is what it means. And we haven't taken the time to figure out what is going on here in this conversation. What makes this extra hard, and here's a little Bible tip for you, is that when you are reading the New Testament, you're reading a lot of letters uh, written to churches. Now, the context of that overlaps our context far more. And so when Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, a lot of that we go, oh, I relate with that. Yeah, that's what's going on in our church, or oh, that's what's going on in our culture, or yes, that's what I'm dealing with when I follow Jesus. There's a lot of areas of overlap, so it's very easy to read the New Testament and apply it to you. 
When you go to the Old Testament, you gotta understand you're reading the Hebrew Bible. You're reading about a different group of people with a different story and a different covenant with God. And there's all kinds of context. You gotta do your homework before you start applying those verses to us. So we can figure out that Jeremiah teaches us that, hey, God does some of his best work when we feel helpless, but only after we've done the work to figure out why was God saying that to them. Now here's what I would give you, two applications. Number one, if you feel helpless because something has happened to you that you did not choose or you did not want, then you can directly relate to the feeling, not the scope, the feeling of the people in Jeremiah 29. That they did not choose this, they did not want this, but in the midst of that helplessness, God communicates to them. But here's what happens when you add Jesus to this mix, because they didn't know that God looked like Jesus yet. We know that. They hadn't seen that. We know that not only does God you know, speak hope to people who feel helpless, but God looks like Jesus. And God reaches out to us. God suffers for us so that we can experience what God wants. That's called the gospel. Like That's amazing. And so when we understand that, not only can we choose to have hope when we feel helpless, but we can take a step forward and put ourselves in helpless situations for the benefit of others. That we can live out our faith by putting ourselves in situations that no one else would ever choose because we know that our God is going to meet us even when we feel helpless. Now you might think, well, why would I ever do that? Why would anyone ever do that? Well, five years ago, my wife and I had been on a journey where we had felt that God asked us to become foster parents. Now, if you've ever uh, done fostering or you know someone who's done this, this is the definition of choosing to be helpless. When you say yes to fostering, you bring in all sorts of variables into your life that you do not control. And, and so I remember day one was like, wow, uh, our prayer life is going to exponentially increase because there are so many things we can't control. And it opened our eyes to this, a lot of amazing things. And for the last five years, it's been one of the best things for me and for my own journey with God to realize my helplessness, to choose to live out my faith in ways that caused me to feel helpless. Now, I was talking with my, my friend one day, and he was also a, a foster parent. He's uh, since adopted a few uh, kids. And we were talking about the experience of being a foster parent. And we were both commenting that there's one thing that almost everybody says to a foster parent, okay? And I don't know if you ever noticed this, if you're a foster parent, or uh, if you've ever just said this, you might go, oh yeah, I've said that. Uh, but whenever someone finds out uh, that I'm a foster parent, uh, the line that I usually hear is, Wow, that's amazing. I could never do that. And it's a weird line. I don't think it's ever said with weird motives, but it's a weird line to hear because you think, am I like superhuman? Like I have abilities that you don't have. That's why I can do this. And the person goes, no, I don't have it. So then you're left with, oh, I must be extra dumb because you all avoided a problem that I said yes to, <laughs> right? because I know that I don't have any superhuman powers. So if I don't have that and I'm saying yes to it, there must be something wrong with me. It's a weird thing to process on this end. Again, it's not ever said with, with ill intent, I don't think, uh, but it's still weird to process. Oh, I could never do that. It's like, well, well then why did I do that? Well, what's, what's, what's going on there? And so my friend and I were talking about this. And he said, Jeremy, I've gotten so tired of people saying that to me that I've developed a response that I give whenever someone says that to me. I said, really, what's your response? Susan so goes like this. Someone will go to me and go, oh, you're a foster dad? That's amazing. I could never do that. And he says, yes, you could. You're choosing not to. 
said, how's that going? It's like, not great. He's like, it gets real awkward. But there's something about that, right? Like, and here's the deal. I'm not guilting you into becoming a foster parent if that is not what God is calling you to do. But here's what I believe. If you wanna follow Jesus today, he will give you something that is going to cause you to take a step forward that will make you feel helpless. And someone else could look at you and go, oh, I could never do that. And yeah, unless Jesus told me to, I wouldn't do that. And shy of Jesus, I would not be raising you know, kids that I adopted. That's from Jesus. I would not choose to do that on my own. But what is Jesus going to call you to do, to ask you to do, to take a step forward and say, you know what? Uh, I want you to feel a little bit helpless here because of you reaching out for the benefit of someone else. So when we process this idea that God does some of his best work when we feel helpless, how do we process what we're dealing with right now? Maybe you're here today and, and, and you feel helpless not because of something you chose, just something is happening in your life. You know, some of you may be uh, going through a failed marriage and it's failing rapidly around you and you just have no sense that it's gonna get better and you feel helpless to do anything about it and it's a chance for you to redirect your attention to Jesus. Okay, if, if I believe that Jesus was in the midst of this and, and that Jesus could have a plan even for something like this, what, what would that look like? Some of you are in a career, uh, your job just feels like it's a dead end and you, you, you go through the motions every week and, and even as you think about Monday, you have this sense of dread that comes over you. Maybe God is inviting you to reconsider that, just to see what he might be doing in the midst of that. Some of you have, have just found something out and now you're trying to respond to it and you don't know how to respond to it and you, you're trying to, to process in real time and, and it's an invitation to go, okay, God, how would I step out? And some of you maybe are looking at the news today and looking at the condition of our country or the condition of the world and you're grieving over it and you feel helpless. So what would we do if we believed that God would use people like us who would say yes to moving forward, to being used to bring healing to others because we will choose to feel helpless. I woke up this morning and uh, was reading a number of news articles about two shootings that happened yesterday. And I don't know about you, but uh, I grieve that. I grieve that. And I grieve that something is incredibly wrong in our country. And as I read those articles this morning, I just began to talk to God and said, what do you want me to do about it? What, what, what do I say about this? Because the moment I even bring that up, the accusation gets leveled, oh, he's just gone political. So, so how do I be faithful to Jesus in the midst of what I'm seeing when God is calling us to rise up, to be the agents of healing on behalf of Jesus? How do we do that if we will not acknowledge what's wrong? And so, church, I don't know how else to do it other than to say something is wrong in our nation, that people are taking the lives of others made in the image of God. As I look at El Paso, as I look at Dayton, read the manifesto of what these people are saying. They're looking at others and the rhetoric in which we are describing people today. It's not okay. If I say anything about it, people say, I don't wanna to go to church like that. I, I, I wanna feel comfortable. And if we won't feel helpless for the sake of others, why are we doing this? 
Church, we have a problem in our country today with white supremacy. Can we call out the sin? Can we name it for what it is? There are people that are dehumanizing one another around us. I don't want to be complicit in that. I don't want to say that my time came and went and I said nothing about it because I was afraid. I feel helpless. I don't know how to solve this problem. But people are using guns to kill other people and we're not a normal country in this regard. And we've gotten used to it, we've gotten numb to it. And I don't think it's okay anymore. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but read the news today and be offended by what people are doing because it it pains me. And so I lament that and I ask Jesus, what do you want the church to do about it? I think it begins by naming the sin and saying, we will take a step forward. We will give ourselves to make this gospel good news for someone else. And it will cause us to feel helpless. Will we do that? for the sake of the gospel? Will we do that to see Jesus bring healing to the brokenness? I don't know about you, but I don't wanna, I don't want Jesus to look at us and say, you had a chance. You had an opportunity and you let it go by because you were afraid. It's time for us to use our voices, to use our influence and say, this is not okay. The rhetoric of how we are talking about people in this country is not okay. And it's time for the church to lead the way and doing something about it. I want to close with what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. It says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You wanna be part of the family of God? It includes suffering to experience the glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Will we join the sufferings of others to experience the glory of what Jesus wants to do? Let's pray together. Jesus, I don't know how to move forward. I don't know the right words to say. I don't know how to navigate what we're seeing around us. And yet I also don't wanna preach a message on being helpless and not acknowledge what I feel right now, what I see going on in our country today. So God, instead of us being afraid of this conversation, us steering clear of it because it doesn't necessarily affect us yet. May we be those that step forward, that step out in faith, that are willing to feel helpless because of what we're doing for the benefit of others. May you use people like us in these communities with all our flaws and all our brokenness. And God, we we repent for the ways that we have been complicit in these problems, for the ways that we have contributed to these problems, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And we plead with you to speak hope, to redirect our gaze, not just to these problems that appear not to have a solution, but that you would use the church to model a way forward, to raise the value of all of your creation, all those made in the image of God, that we would be the champions of that message and we would model it first. 
May you use a church like us, a people like us who believe in the hope of Jesus. We pray in his name. And all God's people said, amen.